Hi there. You're listening to the second episode of the Down on the Farm podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Grosnick. The Down on the Farm podcast is a companion to the Down on the Farm newsletter available for subscription on Substack, where we cover all things minor league baseball with a professional data-driven point of view. Uh, Today's guest is Jarrett Seidler of Baseball Prospectus, the For All You Kids Out There podcast, and occasionally Twitter. We're going to discuss some hitter evaluation through data. And Jarrett, thanks uh, so much for joining me today. Before we get into things, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. So I am one of baseball writing's many semi-retired lawyers, uh, (laughs) because that's a thing that almost everybody on baseball is a Juris Doctorate. I started writing for BP in 2016 on the Prospect team. I also started my podcast with Jeffrey Paranastro right around the same time. And I've been at BP for seven years now, which is incredibly wild because I figured I would do this for like three months and then get bored of it. But instead, <laughs> I'm now like one of the longest tenured writers in BP history somehow without getting myself in too much trouble to get fired at any point, which at times has been uh, a little sketchy. Yeah, you've, got, you've still got some time to get fired. I mean, yeah. there's there's still possibility of that in the future. Yeah, I can be uh, rather abrasive on especially on social media for people who do not follow me. Uh, my Twitter is at J.A. Seidler. Yeah, I am the senior prospect writer. I've been the senior prospect writer for, I think, about four or five years now. I tend to have probably more of an analytical, data-driven approach than a lot of my colleagues at BP and probably a lot of my colleagues in the prospect community, which I think is why Brian is having me on to discuss uh, hitting stuff in specific, because hitting's kind of pitching data stuff is kind of easier to figure out. It's all very, you know, cut and dry. You've got like your spin rates and your VAAs and your IVB, (laughs) your locations, your whiff rates. It's actually all kind of, it's not easy, but it's easier for a prospect evaluator to just kind of figure out. Whereas hitting, if you'll notice, there's like very few people on the internet that analyze hitting in an advanced public manner because there's very few people that are good at analyzing hitting at all. And usually when people say interesting things about hitting, they get hired by teams immediately. Like it's a miracle that Rob Orr is still writing publicly and he's only been writing publicly for like a year. Uh, so yeah, hitting is kind of the, it's, it's the softer area of prospect evaluation. The traditional thing we say is that evaluating a player's hit tool is the hardest thing in prospect evaluation. So it has not gotten substantially easier in the data-driven world either. And you've got a background where you are able to do a lot of the traditional scouting stuff, but also, you know, like you said, you have a little bit of more of a data-driven bent. And that that is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on to talk about it, because it is something that seems really challenging. A lot of people who are getting into prospects from a baseball perspective, whether they're new to the game or new to this level are really um, taking a lot of what's being said by evaluators like yourself, public-facing scouts, folks who, who or and sometimes data evaluators to try to put together a picture of what a player does that's effective, what they can do differently. It's a lot of different inputs, and picking out the signal from the noise can be really difficult. Um, you have very famously uh, made a uh, call on Jeff McNeil that was extremely successful, and uh, and that that was a real eye opener. I think about your level of ability to pull together disparate forms of information and make a call on a prospect that obviously turned out to be wonderfully successful. Obviously there's also ways that it's going to go the other way at times, but that's why I wanted to bring you on is because you've, you've got this background with the data. We at down on the farm do a lot with data from the minor league system. So if somebody is interested in learning more about a prospect from a data perspective First of all, where would you have them look that's publicly available? And then secondly, we can talk a little bit more about this afterwards. What other information is out there, if not publicly, that evaluators like yourself are using to um, to learn more and to, uh, and to find out more about prospects from that data perspective? So on the minor league side, you've got all of your kind of standard data, the data you're going to see on baseball prospectus, on fan graphs, mm-hmm. on baseball reference, you're slash line, batting average, on base percentage, slugging percentage. You're going to get walk percentage, K percentage, ground ball percentage is something that's become increasingly focused on. 
Uh, you'll get some line drive percentage. You'll get swinging strike percentages. You'll get some form of hard hit for something. Okay. What you're not going to get in an organized, comprehensive fashion yet is the stuff you'd get on baseball savant for major leaguers. So exit velocity, full out, like, whiff, whiff rates by pitch necessarily or pitch type. You're not going to get launch angle. You're not going to get ex-woba or any type of ex-woba-like stat. That, for the minor leagues, has for the most part, been kept on the private side now. Mm-hmm. Again, does that information get out? Yeah, Baseball America published exit, average exit velocities for you know most of the top prospects this year. Fangraphs has published some of this information. Prospects Live has published some of this information. We don't, we haven't published it in a comprehensive data set on BP, but what is publicly available is on Brooks Baseball. So if yeah. you go on Brooks Baseball, which is uh, BP adjacent site that runs off of pitch info data, which is one of our statistical arm for leagues that have Hawkeye installations, you're going to be able to get some of the, like the whiff rates. Like I did an article last year on Jared Kelnick, which constantly gets brought up in Mariners (laughs) Twitter and elsewhere. Like I'm like the greatest villain of all time for saying Jared Kelnick couldn't hit a breaking ball. And I put whiff data that was available from Brooks baseball broken out pitch by pitch on there because the PCL leagues for 2021 and 2022 all had Hawkeye installations. The Major League Baseball has generally been installing Hawkeye, which runs the Savant calculations in any league that's had automatic balls and strikes because you need it for RoboLomp, right? And they've made that data available in data streams. Unfortunately, they haven't chosen to make like just like pretty savant pages with the blue and the red and this stuff you can see, but it is available and it's being tabulated by sites like Brooks or by Texas Leaguers or by some other data sources. So uh, unfortunately, there's just like nowhere you can go. Like if you go to the player's Fangraphs player page, it may or may not have this information, or if you're using like a Fangraphs board or something like that, the information may or may not be there depending on what data sources and data streams people have access to. So that kind of makes the whole, the whole enterprise a little bit tougher. Cause if you, if you follow kind of major leaguers, you get, you pretty quickly get a sense of like what successful profiles are. Right. So you, you mentioned Jeff McNeil, Jeff McNeil has tended to outhit his ex-WOBA and XBA, and he does it for very specific reasons because he tend while he doesn't hit the ball in the air really hard, he hits the ball like at good launch angles reasonably hard a ton of the time and very rarely swings and misses, right? So right, that's right. that's just, so while he doesn't he doesn't have a lot of barrels, he has a lot of balls that are like just below barrel level. So that's a real that's a really successful profile. If you look at some other hitters that are, you know, really good, like Shohei Otani, you know, Shohei Otani's average exit velocity for every season but twenty twenty has been ninety two point nine or above. And just yeah. you know, you, so you kind of get a sense that guys who hit the ball really hard, and especially guys who hit the ball in the air really hard. Those are successful profiles, um, or guys that are outliers on whiff rate. I used to be the world's biggest Nick Madrigal fan when he was 100th percentile on whiff rate, and then he suffered a shoulder injury, and now he's only like 90th percentile on whiff rate and no longer has anything driving his skill set anymore. Right. Which is a, which is a cautionary tale about that pro about guys that hit the ball 86 mile an hour average, because um, if you do that, you kind of need to never whiff. Um, or have, you yeah. know, he also hits the ball off the ground all the time. And again, it's hard to tell how much of that's um, related to his shoulder and how much it isn't. But unfortunately, a lot of that data isn't granularly available for minor leagues. Now we have proxies for it. Ground ball rate is a pretty good proxy for launch angle spray, right? It's not perfect, but if a guy's hitting the ball on the ground, 52% of the time his launch angle sucks. Like we just we right. know that. <laughs> And that's a concern that you'll see in certain groups of prospects. Um, swing strike rate is a pretty good proxy 
same kind of deal. If a guy has a really high swing strike rate, we kind of know, you know, his whiffs, you know, his zone contact's probably bad, right? That's picking up zone contact and out of zone contact. And zone contact is significantly more important than out of zone contact for hitters. So you're picking up a little bit of noise there, but out of zone contact's not like completely worthless either. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot that's being done right now about like swing decisions and and how people are making those choices. Swing decision run values or right. swing decision well, data around that. Right, and you need the chase rates and the zone swing rates to kind of really tell that. Like this is um, there's a difference between players who have really good swing decisions and players who have really passive swing decisions. And both of them walk a lot, but if the players are also, like, never swing in the zone, their swing decisions aren't as good. They're just being really passive. So, as an example, Jackson Holiday in his brief time period, walked a ton in pro ball. But he also swung at a decent percentage of the pitches in the zone, whereas I need to make sure I'm going to use the right guy here. So I'm now pulling up data that isn't public, which is always great. Edward Julian, who also walked a ton and did it over the course of the entire season, never chased, but also swung at a relatively low percentage of pitches within the zone. And that can be fine, too, but it kind of limits the hit tool upside there because you're letting some hittable pitches pass by in that case. So kind of the combination. So a lot of modern swing decision metrics are, I mean, look, team swing decision metrics are four levels past this. They're not just looking at chase rates. They're looking at like waste rates for pitches that are in the shadow zone and stuff like that. So, but you know, things that you can reasonably tell publicly, okay, Julian might be letting a few more pitches within the zone pass by than should be compared to, I don't who's another prospect who like walked a ton. Evan Carter. Evan Carter's more of a swing decision guy, whereas Julian's okay. a little bit more on the more passive side. Now with Carter, you've got stuff. The knock on Carter is his exit philosophy. He hasn't hit the ball that hard. This is knock on Evan Carter. It's even more so a knock on Jordan Lawler. Yeah, um, there's a lot of discussion about what exit velocity means within the, um, I think, prospect analysis community in general. In the major leagues, we have a pretty good idea. Most players are relatively maxed out. If they add a tick or two, or, you know, Lars Newtbar has been adding exit velocity. But the guys that add a ton of exit velocity are like rare enough that they're interesting to talk about because most players it's like relatively they bounce around from year to year yeah teams haven't even really had this type of data for more than five six minor league seasons because remember there's also a minor league season that didn't exist in this time period yeah so one of the unanswered questions is somebody like jordan lawler evan carter a 19 20 year old what does them having bad exit velocities at that age mean for what their exit velocity is going to look like at 27 or 28? We just like don't, teams don't even have a big enough data set to know that quite yet. Sure. I would say the theory on that right now is 80th or 90th percentile exit velocity is kind of the theoretical thing that teams, analysts believe portends to future power outcomes. Evan Carter's upper end exit velocities, they're a little bit better than his average exit velocities, but not a ton. Jordan Waller, kind of in the same boat. They're not great. Like, he just kind of doesn't really hit the ball that hard in general. You know, Waller's average exit velocity last year was in, like, the 83-84 range. Something else interesting you run into is that different data sets end up giving you different numbers on this stuff, and you're like, how could that possibly happen, right? Because, yeah, yeah. yeah. so there's, there's two things at play here. One is that the installations at some ballparks are not super accurate, which that also happens in the major leagues, too. If you go on a Fangrass page and look at you can pull up pretty much any player. Um, I'm just going to... Miguel Rojas is here at the top of their search bar. because <laughs> Of course he is, because he is a stuff. man of the moment right now. Right. So if you scroll down to Miguel Rojas's 
batted ball type data or his plate discipline data. There's a difference between what it shows for his plate discipline play data and what it shows for his pitch info plate discipline data, because those right. are two data sets giving you similar outcomes, but they're coming to the conclusion slightly differently. So his chase rate for pitch info is 30.9% last year, and his chase rate for, I would assume this is just the unwashed BAM data, is 34.4%. Those are not inconsiderable differences. So that's a difference in washing the data and how you process it. And beyond that, a lot of this data on the prospect side is sourced by teams and teams sometimes make adjustments to it. Right. Um, they'll pull out the spiked 55 foot curveballs or the fastballs, you know, way above the head. Some teams for their exit velocity calculations will pull out certain types of batted balls. You can get slightly different numbers depending on where you use like there's been there's been like four different numbers floated out there for like ellie de la cruz's chase rate which for him is like a super duper important number it's going to be the difference whether he's a star or a guy that looks like a star but strikes out all the time right um and like the difference on whether his chase rate is 33 35 37 38 depends entirely on what data source you use However, if it's 33 based on the data, like as put to the major leagues versus 38 or 39, that's a huge difference in terms of where his future outcomes come. Another thing with the exit velocity to consider and this, um, when you start looking at college players, they're using metal bats most of the time, which is, yeah, uh, that's, which is another, that's not fair. Right. It's <laughs> and so now we're talking about adjustments for men. There's different kinds of bats and there's different so you've got that there. And then you've also we don't really know like we know what these numbers mean for major leaguers, but you start getting down to like so a lot of comparison points are made against major league average, like right. a player's chase rate versus major league average your chase rate tends to get a lot worse going from double A to the majors because the pitchers are a lot better, stuff like that. So you got like exit velocity versus major league average. Well, the pitchers in the majors are better. Uh, that's that's going to be a really common theme. Like all of a sudden you're getting these like sliders on the black low and outside where you're either swinging and missing or you're like hitting like the weakest contact of all time because mm – -hmm. The pitchers are better at contact suppression, too. We found that contact suppression is an actual skill recently. You know, Dip's theory is not, strictly speaking, true. I would say there's a lot of information out there, and there's a lot of stuff you can look at, and it's stuff that we try to consider, but we're trying to, we're trying to put together a picture of a player. Right. Um, as opposed to just kind of feeding it into a model. You can feed stuff into models and get results. I know Prospects Live did some interesting stuff with that this past winter. I know BA has done some interesting stuff with that as well. And there's nothing inherently wrong with doing that, but that's not really what we're doing at BP. At BP, we're trying to use this to more inform things. You know, James Wood is a really good example of this. We ranked him number three. Um, reliably, I believe Fangraphs also ranked him third, but most other outlets had him in like the 10 to 20 range. Yeah, I don't think Baseball America was quite as high. I think most right. other outlets were lower. Yeah. Why is that? Now, James Wood was a second round pick from the Padres in 2021. And if you go back to the 2020 showcase scene and even the 2021 spring so 2020 was the pandemic showcase scene, which was just like a mess. And he wasn't very good in that scene. And then 2021, he's like a little bit better, but there's like some swing and miss against high school pitching. Now he went to IMG Academy. So it's not like bad high school pitching, but still like, okay, what are we doing? So he's at IMG Academy. So it's like good high school pitch. This is the Elijah Green thing too. Elijah Green swung and missed a lot more against this level of pitching than James Wood did. But James Wood's like a big guy. He's like six foot seven. He's got long arms, right? So he goes to Instructs after signing and he plays some in the Arizona Complex League. And it's like, there's still some swing and miss, but you know, he's looking really good. Like he's getting like scout reviews. They're like, man, like this guy's, you know, this guy might be a big thing. So he comes out in April Looks like the best prospect on the planet, then immediately gets hurt. 
kind of bounces around for a lot of the spring. You know, again, big guys, some injuries. We bumped him up into the midseason 50. Then he gets traded for Juan Soto. Now, the common consensus at the time of the trade was that Robert Hassel was the best prospect in that deal. We started hearing from people like immediately that Robert Hassel wasn't even close to the best prospect in that deal James Wood was. So we start looking, we start doing a harder look at the data and it's like, okay, this guy's hitting the ball as hard as any prospect in the entire minor leagues. Like his, his average exit fuels are in like the 92 range. Um, He's rarely chasing. His chase rates are well above average. His swinging strike rate, which is supposed to be the great concern here, he's making a lot of contact in the zone. He's swinging to miss a little bit more outside the zone, but that's not something that we consider quite as sticky. When we're putting together the 101, like in earlier iterations of the 101, he's down in like the 15, 20 range where he ended up on most other lists. And I just, I kept having conversations with pro scouts, pro scouting analysts, those are... I tend to, for my sourcing, I tend to not talk to super upper level people very often. I find it more insightful on my end to talk to um, scouts and analysts more than like directors. I, I talk to directors and cross checkers some, but everybody's like, man, like James Wood's like the second or third best prospect in baseball. We, we, we had people that thought he was better than Jordan Walker. I talked to people that thought wow. he was better than Jordan Walker too. I did not find anybody who thought he was better than Gunnar Henderson. You know, it's it's just like you read this guy's TrackMan, and we got a more advanced TrackMan readout from a team source than the type of data. And it's just like, but it's like, you know, he's putting up like barrel proxy. Because again, teams don't use barrel rate as assigned by BAM. They tend to have some type of proxy for it uh, that they consider more insightful. A lot of times it's like, Balls hit 95 miles an hour between like 10 degrees and 35 degrees or something like that. But that varies a lot by team too. Yeah. And it's, it's not going to be exactly what the barrel rate is right. on StatCast, And right. it doesn't really matter because we don't have that for minor. Right. It doesn't so. matter. But this guy's like putting up some of the highest barrel rates in the minors. Yeah. His exit velocity is phenomenal. His zone. Like this is a guy who's six foot seven and had swing and miss problems for two years before this year. And then all of a sudden he's putting up like zone contact rates and like the mid to high eighties. Like that's just like, that's like, that's not plus bat to ball for his age or his position or his height or anything. That's just like plus bat to ball, like bordering on plus plus bat to ball from a guy who was supposed to have like three bat to ball a year ago at this time. Chase yeah. rates are great. It's just like, Okay, so why aren't we shoving this guy all the way to the top? Well, it was like 290, 300 plate appearances. Some of them were in the complex because he was on rehab. Great. So if he had 600 plate appearances, if he had done this for the entire season at low A and then got pushed up to high A in July, which is what would have happened if he dominated, like, yeah, he would have been number one, right? He would have been Gunnar Henderson, but better. So, you know, he's an example of a guy – and. I want to contrast that to Robert Hassel, who, as recently as May or June, people were considering a better prospect than James Wood. Robert Hassel's got a really pretty-looking swing. If if you watch Robert Hassel, it's like one of those like just great lefty swings, nice and balanced through the zone, just really smooth. So we're starting to find out that just doesn't matter very much. Um, what it looks like it's like kind of important and there's levels at which it's important, but then you start look. what is actually driving Robert Hassel's hit tool. He hits it on the ground. I was talking a minute ago, ground ball rate above 50%, huge red flag. Robert Hassel's ground ball rate last year was like 54%. Yeah. He's hitting it on ground all the time. Is he hitting for high averages? Well, not really. He hit for a nice high average in the Midwest league in 2021, but not really so much since then. Is he swinging and missing a lot? Yeah, he's actually kind of swinging and missing a good amount now, too. Does Is he particularly... Uh, does he make particularly good swing decisions? Well, no. Like, the swing decisions <laughs> in the bat-to-ball are okay. They're like, they're, like, average for a player of his age. But if you're going to put a seven-hit tool on the guy, he needs to actually have way better than average swing decisions. Or right. his own contact. 
or hard hit rate or just like something. He also does not hit the ball particularly hard. So getting back to Jeff McNeil, who's a guy who hits the ball, who has really good hit placement skills, he also makes a crap ton of contact and he does at times hit the ball hard and he hits the ball in the air all the time. Um, yeah. Or at least not on the ground. Like Robert Hassel takes these really pretty looking hacks and then grounds out to the second base. You know, we kind of, and Hassel also went to the Arizona Fall League and proceeded to break his hammy, which is like the worst possible injury that a hitter can have. It's not like career threatening. That's just like an injury that affects. And there were, you know, he had revealed later that he'd played through that for some of the 22 season. And that cuts both ways. That's both. This is the same thing with Brady Hallis also in this list. I did the Nationals yeah. list um, for BP last year. Brady Hallis had a really bad back injury last year. That is both an excuse for why he was bad, but it's also a concern moving forward. He's a 20-year-old kid with back problems now, so, oh, yeah. which is not good. Robert Hassel's a 20-year-old kid with handmade problems now. Also not or 21-year-old kid with handmade problems. Um, just like George Valero's had... Um, Hammy problems left the game the other day with uh, continuing hand problems. So I don't know whether this is divergent from other prospect analysts, but to me, the hit tool is being driven a lot more by damage on contact than I thought even three or four years ago. The guys that have that hit for really high averages either just make an enormous amount of contact, like Luis Arias. Luis Arias hits for a really good average, does almost no damage on contact, but he also like never swings and misses and only swings and hittable pitches. Right. Jeff McNeil, yeah. same kind of thing. Um, Those are your also- type of guys who win batting titles because of just the frequency of the amount of contact they make rather than really great quality on the pitches they do connect with. right but the guys who do that you know you're these, these strikeout rates are really like you're talking 10 12 percent strikeout rates right um and those are that those are rare those are really rare the majority of players hit tool is driven by swing decisions and damage on contact it's not the aesthetic quality of the swing you know you can look at gunner henderson who's i something close to the consensus number one prospect in baseball. And I wrote that he was the top prospect in baseball, like six weeks after the season opened last year, which I'm really proud. I got that one, right. Cause I had a lot of people that were going like, what on earth did you just write, man? But that, that the industry came around to that one. That's great. I never know how much of like, if I never wrote that article, would everybody else still have Corbin Carroll? Number one. I don't know because there's like this weird circular feedback loop where like I'll write something like that. And it like it's like game of telephone through like eight different people. And then it'll get back to me as something a team source gave me. But that was Gunnar Henderson's like hit tool didn't improve in what we would consider any sort of classic hit tool sense. He just got much better at deciding what pitches to swing at. He got much better at hitting those pitches really hard in the air and all of a sudden, his batting average went up. Yeah, of course it did. Because now all of a sudden, instead of making weak contact on like those sliders off the plate, he's laying off of them or fouling them off and then driving the next pitch, which the pitcher hung, you know, 380 off the wall. You think of that as power, but it's actually hit, too. I, mean, I don't know if there was an actual answer to any of your questions. And I've now <laughs> rambled on for what was supposed no, to be the entire of this podcast. So. It's outstanding. If you want to to ask some more discreet questions, it's probably not a bad idea. You know, I I think what what I've been taking away from this, a lot of the big takeaways here are that what what matters when evaluating hitter is how hard they're hitting it, how good their swing decisions are, and how often they they swing and miss on balls that they can get a hold of. I mean, it's not just... From an analytic perspective, I think that's the majority of it. And a lot of that stuff will pop up in stuff that you can find on a fan graphs page. You know, swing strike rate is something you can find on there. Ground ball rate. Shape of batted ball is really important. It just, it is. If a guy's hitting a lot of infield pops or weak ground balls, they're just, they're not going to hit the ball. They're not going to get singles. We know that it's those hard hit balls in the air that matter. Kyle Manzardo in the Rays system is is a really good example of this for a guy that just like his top end exit velocities aren't that great, but like all he does is hit the ball hard in the air. And, you know, he's not a guy that I think you would consider to have like a classic hit tool, 
and he makes a good amount of contact and he doesn't chase a lot, but neither of those are like outlier good. And he's mm-hmm. not going to put up like 115 exit velocities, but he's just constantly hitting like 94 mile an hour line drives in the air. And he's putting up huge batting averages because of it. Yeah. And I think that depending on what ball we get in a divot in a given season and what the, some of the contextual factors are, you can do that and have a season that really shows up as being really productive in terms of outcomes, or you could have a season that, that maybe hides it a little bit. Yeah. And conversely, Jackson Merrill, who's, um, yeah, he's a guy that has terrible batted ball shape. All he does is hit the ball down into the ground, like all the time. However, he's an outlier on both zone contact and exit velocity. So those are like 104 mile an hour ground balls that tend to get through the hole and he's hitting a whole lot of them. (laughs) So it's not, there's different shapes of performance that can lead to really good hit tool outcomes, but you kind of have to be, you have to be either pretty good at everything or really, really good at one or two things. Otherwise you're just going to be one of these guys that has like, all the tools are here, but he's not performing like Victor Robles, right? Yeah. So, and Victor Robles' power collapse in the majors too. Going back to Merrill for a second, because he's such an interesting guy to, for lack of a better term, to see the discourse around. Because yeah. I think a lot of evaluators look at him and they, or a lot of people, I won't say evaluators, but I think a lot of people who are interested in prospects look at him and say, man, you know, if he just changes that one thing, and he starts putting the ball in the air a little bit more he's going to be something really special. And so the difference between being able to identify what a player is doing and then not trying to wish cast like these dramatic changes, which may or may not happen. I mean, obviously there's, there's adjustments that players make over time to improve on some of these, um, these things. But like, you know, with the Mets example, they always talked about Eric Campbell and his, you know, outstanding hits the ball super hard, but he drove it into the ground all the time and was, you know, just generally, very much a, a KBO player and not a major league player. You know, when when people are looking at that, how much stock do you want to put into this idea of like, oh man, he could just change one thing and get better? Or should we really be looking at the data how it is today and not making huge expectations about something big is going to change going forward? Yeah, so it, this is everybody's favorite answer. It depends, right? Well, yeah. Okay. yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Do they have room to grow into their body? Do they have, like, are they working in the right organization to play to their strengths? Oh, yeah. Organization's a big thing now. There's organizations that are good and bad at developing hitters. Now, Jackson Merrill might be in a situation where you'd consider organizational context less than most players because almost every good Padres prospect has very quickly become not a Padres prospect. (laughs) That's true. Um, So that's something that you might want to consider with Merrill. The Padres, I don't think, are particularly good or bad at, like, hitting them. They're just kind of like one of those teams lying in the middle. So I don't know that that particularly matters. But you consider the context of Merrill. So Merrill basically came out of nowhere into the 21 draft. I had first heard of him maybe three months before the draft from an area, you know, he's roughly in my neck of the woods. It's like 150 miles south of me from an area scout in this area that was just like, there's this kid in Maryland who's going to go in the first round and you've never heard of him. I'm like, okay, sure. (laughs) Um, But it turned out and nobody had heard of it. He hadn't really played the showcase circuit. He just like during the pandemic, he went from a second tier likely to go to college, likely to have no pro future type prospect. All of a sudden he did get drafted in the first round. Um, I remember talking to that area scout. He was really upset when a GM showed up to his game like a month before the draft. Um, and it turned out the GM was AJ Preller. Uh, he ended up taking. Now AJ Preller goes to more high school baseball games than not only any GM, but most scouting directors. So that's like not like super rare, but you know, all of a sudden the secret's out. But this is a kid from, and you know, he's from like the Annapolis, Maryland region. Like this is not a baseball hotbed. So the quality of competition is not particularly good. So he's, you know, he's not really being challenged. He never really went heavy on the showcase circuit. He was also in that 2021 draft where a lot of the 2020 showcase circuit got wiped out by COVID. He goes to Padres instructs and he looks like he belongs. So he was still a surprise first round draft pick at the time of the draft. People I think were generally expecting him going second. 
But the Padres popped him early, and I believe signed him a little bit below a slot so they could sign James Wood to an overslot bonus in the second. But he goes to Instructs, and it's like, okay, he belongs here. He looks like a first-round pick shortstop. And then he comes in this spring, and all of a sudden, so he'd made, like, a significant body growth and physical strength adjustment during the pandemic. And then in the 21-22 offseason, it's like, okay, this kid's, like, this kid no longer looks like a first-round draft pick. He looks like he was one of the top five picks in the country. And then he comes out in 22 i have no idea how the nationals did not get him in the juan soto trade i wrote the washington (laughs) essay in the annual and i wrote a paragraph about this this is baffling this kid grew up 30 miles from dc played high school baseball 30 miles from dc is one of the top 20 prospects in baseball and you are trading juan soto to his team and not getting him like that is just I, I don't know why that happened. That was just the, it was a mistake. You had to get C.J. Abrams. That's, that's how right. it was. Right. It was, it was, yeah, they prioritized, you know, we could do a whole podcast on the Nationals and how they prioritize um, certain factors, but they're a team that's not going to prioritize damage on contact and contact ability. That sure. combination of if you make a lot of contact and you make tons of damage on contact, that's literally the combination. If you have that, the rest of it doesn't matter. Like yeah. if you are, if you are making a lot of contact and hitting the ball hard, like we're describing like the Freddie Freeman skill set at that point, yeah. the Paul Goldschmidt skill set. Like we are, we are describing the best hitters in baseball for the most part. Seven um, and eight hitters. Right, yes. Just incredible. The guys that hit 300 every year with slugging. They got the three, four, five hitters, right, yeah. in the slash line. So Merrill, there's not a lot of prospects that look like they might have that kind of combination. You know, you've got Merrill. Uh, you've got Jackson Holiday, who we talked about a couple of minutes ago. You've yeah. got Wood. You've got Gunnar Henderson. You've got maybe a couple of guys like Curtis Mead might have that combination, but he's had some injury problems and nobody knows where he's going to be defensively. Emmanuel Rodriguez looked like he was starting to get that kind of combination last year, but then he got hurt and missed most of the season. But that's like almost it. Like once you get like the next tier of down is like missing something like Corbin Carroll is missing. Corbin Carroll's really fast and has some markers for hit tool and some markers for power, but it doesn't look like he's going to like do an enormous amount of damage on contact and make an enormous amount of contact. He might get there. You never know. Brett Beatty is another one. He doesn't make enough contact to really qualify for this. Francisco Alvarez doesn't make enough contact to qualify for this. Right. Um, Ellie Dela Cruz, his chase rate's so bad that he doesn't make enough contact for this. Um, yep. Jordan Walker might not make enough contact for this. Um, Marcel Meyer might not make enough contact for this. Like these are the top. Some of and the that's, top, that's all top twenty guys. I right. Mean, some of the look. top prospects in baseball don't have this combination. Right. So Jackson Merrill, you know, has contact rates and hard hit rates that are up there with the top guys on both sides. So, yeah, if he starts hitting the ball more in the air, of course he's going to be the best prospect in minor league baseball. He does literally everything else. He plays good yeah. shortstop, too. Like, you know, yeah, of course he is. He's the only thing really separating Jackson Merrill and Gunnar Henderson is that Gunnar Henderson hits the ball in the air more, and Gunnar Henderson's done this at higher levels for longer. Like that's the only difference between those two in terms of skills. There's other differences between those. Yeah, obviously. You're talking about like the separating skills here. You know, if Jackson Merrill hits the ball, his ground ball rate drops from like there was like 58 last year. I'm not looking it up, but if it drops from like 58 to 45 and he does this at Double A and Triple A, yeah, of course he's going to be a top prospect in baseball this time next year. He very well might be the top prospect in baseball this time next year. he would be better than any of the guys that are on this year's list. He would be, you know, closer to like where Bobby Witt or Julio Rodriguez was last year. Right. So can he maintain everything else while also lifting the ball is part of his contact ability that he's not trying to lift the ball. That's is more it? of a holistic question, right? Now you're now you're starting to ask developmental and holistic questions because these skills are always interrelated with each other and and things you might do for one thing. I'm going to use a pitching example just because it's easier, but Davey Garcia in the Yankees system, uh, (laughs) two and a half years ago, looked like 
the one of the best pitching prospects in baseball coming out of the 2019 season. Um, yep. Before the pit, I guess that's three and a half years ago now. Oh Jeez. my god, time is going so yeah. fast. Time means nothing. <laughs> So coming out of the last season before the pandemic, he's got like this, he's got great fastball shape. He's got this really nifty curveball. He's got a developing changeup, and the Yankees are trying to teach him a sweeping slider, right? Because the Yankees teach everybody a sweeping slider. And for 90% of Yankees pitching development projects, that's a major positive, right? You know, you start. You know, you look at all of these guys that the Yankees have developed out of nothing. Davey Garcia, to try and get better control of his slider, drops his arm slot. Now, all of a sudden, his fastball is much worse. His curveball is much worse. His command is much worse. And you fast forward three years, and he's got a better slider than he did in 2019, but everything else is backed up by, like, three grades. So when you make one of these relatively small tweaks to try and get the play, you know, this is Brett Beatty hits the ball on the ground too much at times too. And I think the Mets, he's been like flirting with this tweak for a couple of years now to hit the ball in the air harder instead of hitting the ball on the ground harder. But -hmm. you don't know that it's not going to affect how hard he hits the ball or how often he hits the ball or that he's not going to make swing decision changes because he's picking different balls to try and lift versus the ones he's trying to take what the pitcher gives him, which is why you always prefer the player that's already made the changes. That's why Gunnar Henderson is at the top of this list because he's already made these changes or James Wood appears to have already made these changes. Whereas Merrill maybe needs to make some of those changes moving forward. Yeah. And if he adds the loft to the ball, you know, like you said, he could be passing up other pitches that he's making great contact on. He may be making a change to his swing to keep the bat out of the zone longer. I mean, there could be lots of different things that he could be changing his angle of attack. You don't know what could have a knock-on effect something else. It's like everything else in baseball. Everything is related to everything else. Yeah, you're probably more qualified to talk about that than I am, honestly. Not not on this podcast, for sure. It's hard to do in a non-visual medium, but yeah, there's so many different things that can affect this. So you make one change and you you can change a hitter's profile for the negative as much as you can the positive. What, What I'm interested in is these different things about are these changes something we should expect? No. We want to see what they're already doing. And then if there are tweaks, maybe those will come in time. Or if there's body changes or there's all sorts of other things, the injury issues, those kinds of things. But the data obviously doesn't tell us everything, but we do need to listen to what it's telling us and not necessarily um, just assume that things will change in the future. You can forecast certain things, though. Like, I currently just feel kind of dumb for not forecasting that Andrew Painter was going to add a really hard slider cutter because... The Phillies have given every single pitcher of any note that pitch at some point, usually around the developmental curve where he is. And the guy obviously had the arm speed and the arm slot for it. So, like, of course they were going to give it to him at some point, right? You know, you, Pitch design is cheating, though. That's, yeah, that's something that so many teams right. can do. It's easier to do with pitching than hitting, right? So yeah. we kind of talked about that at the beginning. This is all just, like, easier with pitching. You know, I can... I don't really know the developmental trick that the Cleveland Guardians do to get all of their pitchers throwing three miles an hour harder than they were in college, but I do know that they do it. Yeah, <laughs> not right. It's uh, it's like what you were um, seeing with the Mets back, you know, ten years ago, where it seemed like everybody was just picking up a little bit of velocity. The Guardians have done it, and now that it seems to be a lot yeah. more sustainable for them. It's, yeah. it's outstanding. Like, how on earth did every other team let them draft Justin Campbell? Because Justin Campbell is another one of these guys that just, like, has everything except velocity, except, of course, he's going to have velocity because the Guardians drafted him. And more teams are getting better at that. I think there was a... More teams are realizing that you can draft the characteristics and develop the velocity. It's very hard to actually do the other side, to give a pitcher that has bad characteristics but velocity better characteristics like josiah gray you know the nationals this year are like trying like every different kind of pitch type with josiah gray to try and give him some kind of fastball that's not just like completely terrible josiah gray has really nice fastball velocity and probably has the worst fastball shape of any starting pitcher in the major leagues and his fastball has gotten absolutely hammered in the majors 
you know, that they're trying to sink her, they're trying to cut her, they're, I'm, I'm sure there's more tweaks coming, but it's easier to take a pitcher who has really good four seam fastball or sinker because there are good sinkers and give them extra a lot. You know, the Ricky Tiedemann thing. Yeah. Um, he's been, he's been up to the upper nineties this spring. And basically since he was drafted, he was drafted as like a low nineties guy. And it's just kind of ticked up like one tick every two or three months uh, <laughs> since then. Uh, now all of a sudden he's like sitting 98 to 99. Uh, he yeah. has great characteristics on pretty much everything, including a sinker. We went through that phase as a community where like all sinkers were bad and it's not all sinkers are bad. It's bad sinkers are bad. There were a whole lot of bad sinkers out there, but the bad sinkers are kind of getting axed. And now we're getting into like sinkers are actually cool again. If you throw them up in the zone with like lots of seams of seam shifted wake and don't throw them how the pitching coaches of 2003 told you to throw them to get weak ground ball contact. Because when you do that, you actually get really hard contact and it's not always ground balls. I have it on authority, though, that all sweeping sliders are good. All sweepers are good. So I, I assume that that will never change and that sweepers will be great forever. I mean, so if you can get your pitcher to throw a pitch that is classified as a sweeper, it's generally really good. But right. how many guys are trying to throw sweepers and just throwing like hanging slurves instead? Yeah, you got to have the right arm angle, the arm action. Right. Otherwise, it's just, um, you know, a bad, a bad slurve or a bad curveball. I, I wrote about this last year at BP, and I had a conversation eliminating a little further with Harry, the uh, Harry Pavlides, who has some fancy title, director of stats or whatever else. He's also a co-owner of the site over at BP, but he's he's like the guy on like pitch classification specifically. Um, mm-hmm. And we were conversing after MLB broke out the sweeper into a distinct category, but also the slurve into a distinct category. So it's like, what is actually a slurve if you're breaking sweepers out of it? Yeah. There's kind of three pitches that have been classified as a slurve. Sweeping sliders, then two is actually pitchers that are throwing two different breaking balls within the same velocity band. Josiah Gray is, again, an example of this. Josiah Gray throws a curveball and a slider that are both in the low to mid-80s. Right. In a lot of scouting reports with Josiah Gray, you'd see that he was throwing a slurve, but he's actually throwing two distinct pitches in there. The third kind, which is the one that I'm assuming they're going to continue to tag, is just like really bad, nondescript breaking balls. <laughs> Those are also tagged as slurves because they usually have like bad or no movement. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, this has been a really insightful conversation. I really appreciate you going way longer than you had to. I did warn you that was going to happen. <laughs> I, you did. And I um, I was like, no, we're going to keep it on track. And I, I, I definitely failed in that regard. But there's a lot of really <laughs> great information in there. And I, uh, I think our listeners are going to really appreciate it. So before I let you go and um, before we, um, we end this, I just want to give you the opportunity to get your plugs or your shout outs in for, for BP or for all you kids out there for whatever you want to plug for, uh, for the end of the show. Yeah. So I write at baseball prospectus, um, during the season, that's usually weekly ish in the off season, everything gets screwed off because we have prospect lists and other forms of content Dakota week. I'm writing the Orioles season preview, which I think I need to file today because it's going up. It makes sense uh, that they uh, tagged you for that with the uh, with the Orioles farm system that they've got this year. So, well, I actually signed up for that one because oh, okay. I wanted to. So, Pakoda thinks the Orioles are going to be bad this year, and I want to write about why because I disagree with it, but I understand why. Um, okay, because Pakoda can't. The Orioles are really good at. Rob Maines wrote about this with about the Cardinals last week. That the reason that the Cardinals keep overperforming Pakoda is because they're really freaking good at player development. Yeah. You can't actually build that into an algorithm. I think the Orioles are now also really good at player development, and they have a specific quirk of projections that they're getting caught up in, which is that they're going to self-select the best players over the course of the season, but we can't figure out exactly who they're going to be yet. Like, they're going to get good production out of one of Jorge Mateo or Connor Norby or Jordan Westberg or Joey Ortiz. Like on aggregate, they're going to get good production out of them. We, we just don't know who yet. Uh, this is affecting the Braves as well. Like the Braves project to get almost no 
non-Travis Darno production out of left field slash DH. Well, that's not actually going to happen because one of two things is going to happen. Either Eddie Rosario or Marcelo Zuna or Sam Hilliard or somebody is going to have a bounce back season and they're going to get good production that way. Or they're going to go acquire somebody because they're going to be in a pennant race at two of the easiest positions to upgrade and they're just going to go trade for somebody. each year. Sure. So, but I think the Orioles are like a really interesting, discrete example of that. So I kind of wanted to write about that. I'm also writing about the Mets, uh, just because I felt, haven't actually written anything on the Mets in a while. And I thought it was about time to write something about the Steve Cohen Mets. I think the last time I wrote about the Mets major league team was when I did the BP annual essay that I like to pretend I forgot because in the time period in which in between when it went to press and when people read it, Jared Porter got outed as a sex pest. So. Yeah, it didn't didn't work out so well in that time yeah. period between yeah. between Just writing and publishing. Yeah, I, I had that happen in uh, not that, but I, I kept having, uh, yeah, that, that's just like, that's, we had that with Carlos Correa this year. We went to press um, in the time period in which it was not clear what Carlos Correa was doing. So there's like, so that affects the Brett Beatty write-up, that affects the Royce Lewis write-up, that affects yeah. the Mets essay, the Twins essay, the Giants essay. <laughs> it's just like. The Carlos Correa butterfly effect uh, causing chaos is is real. Yeah, Yeah, we we were there. There were a whole lot of pending the outcome of the Carlos Correa situation, which by the time anybody got the book, they knew he was going to be on the Giants. But at the time we were impressed, they didn't. Yeah, but yeah. So um, it affected it affected me a lot less with my Cole Irvin write up in the A's uh, prospects. (laughs) We 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 didn't really have to like reshuffle what what was being done with the Orioles or the A's based on yeah those ones. You just stick a sentence at the end. (laughs) Traded for uh, Darnell Hernandez and a minor league pitcher whose name I forget. Uh, Irvin Irvin uh, Irvin looks to thrive in front of the new deep right field left field wall and (laughs) yeah exactly. But um, yeah, so I write at BP um, weekly-ish. Uh, my Twitter is at J.A. Seidler. Uh, I do a podcast weekly for all you kids out there, which is a BP Mets adjacent podcast. Um, I do not suggest that anybody listen to that unless they're obsessed with the Mets or professional wrestling or prospects, because if I mean, it, it, it is it is sickos only, but at the same time, it's also there's there's some really great nuggets that that you can get out of there from from Jer- uh, from yourself, from Jeffrey, and from yeah. your occasional guest too. Yeah. Uh, if if sometimes you, if you think I rambled rambling. on this one, I rambled much worse on that one. So. Sure. Sure. All right. Well, again, thank you so much, Jarrett. Um, I really appreciate your time and your expertise here. Uh, so this has been the Down on the Farm podcast for more great minor league baseball content, including scores, prospect profiles, new data and metrics, daily updates on the slate of minor league baseball games. You can visit us on downonthefarm.substack.com or at Twitter at downonthefarm12. Subscriptions are available at... I'm going to redo that. Subscriptions are available at monthly and annual rates, and you'll find that we're a very affordable way to keep on the cutting edge of minor league baseball research with over 1,500 subscribers at the time of this recording. Stop by your podcast provider if you enjoyed the show and subscribe, and don't forget to rate and review us with a five-star rating if you enjoyed us. I'm Brian, and thanks so much for listening.